when Pilot comes home, she boils chickpeas. She soaks them overnight and then boils them in three kinds of salt from the mines in the hands. Most everyone Pilot knows would consider this bland beyond bearing, but that's alright, they aren't the ones eating it. Pilot's mother was a great cook. Since it's now just her, Pilot cooks to feed herself. She's not looking to have a party. It takes a long time to boil the chickpeas down to the mush she likes. Pilot sits on the floor next to the pot with the sticks burning beneath. There are pieces of newsprint strewn around her. She has more clipped, wet, to laundry lines across her little room. They drip paint, red, blue, green, whatever Pilot can find. She touches the paper. Paper is cheap, from Crethris. There are always more and more magazines and newspapers coming out. Pilot can't read a word of it, but the ink's all blotted out by the brilliance of paint. It's the cheap shit, but don't breathe this if you want to live to 50 shit. That suits Pilot fine. As the chickpeas boil, Pilot starts to rearrange the paper into shapes. Goats, strange things like dragons, cranes and golems. In the morning, she will leave them here and there, on windsills and the boats she'll place near the storm drains, like they ran aground. Some little children find them, most are lost to other fates. That's all fine with Pilot. Time needs filling up. I brought you something, the student says to the old women playing chess. What have you brought, little bird? the old women ask. A honeycomb for your tea, from the hives of the mercy-minded one, she says, her face smug as she takes a seat next to the women, watching them play. They stop their play and give cries of appreciation, and they summon their friends and passerby because this is a rare gift. There is bickering, and the young student hears words that she does not understand. She has been speaking Kethrissi, but these people speak to each other now in a fungal bloom of accents and dialects. Did you bring enough for all of us, little bird? A toothless man with a scar down his face asks, barely comprehensible. No, she did not, one of the chess players answers on the student's behalf. So mind yourselves, watch us drink the Queen of Mercy's favour, and if you wish to be treated as richly, you will help her too. Help with what? The man grumbles, standing aside but too respectful of the chess players to leave their company once called. I'm studying the Kethrissi languages, the student says, chirpily. There are some books you can get from the Sublime Republic on Kethrissi itself. It's grammar and spelling. Lots of books in the language. But all these other ways of speaking you each have, all your dialects, no one's ever put that on paper. I want to be the first. She addresses the crowd now. I come here every Shukraba, and I listen to you speak. I reward you for your trouble, and I just take my notes and ask a few questions. What do you think? Murmuring, excited, unsure, the old women argue their case. The old man says, But we all speak wrong, right peasants. We don't know how to read or write, why record our mistakes. His face turns sly. Actually, you should write that we speak correctly, like the gentlemen. We're as good as them, verily and forsooth. Write that down. For honey tea, I can be as soft-spoken as any landowner. But that doesn't give us new knowledge, she protested. But that's not what this is about. New knowledge, the old man laughs, and he inches closer to the student. Everyone who talks like me knows what I'm saying. So the only one who'll be learning is you, 
and what you've learned is how to sound like some backwoods peasant, so you can mock me in your precious universities and parlors. Isn't it so? Matty, one of the chess players says, raising a hand. Isn't it so? You write me down. You write me down the way I should sound in my language, not how I do sound, you hear me, little university bird? I'm not going to be mocked at my age for some honey tea. Not at my age, you hear? He turns and walks away, and most of the crowd stays to comfort her, to tell her that he is bitter, bitter, because he lost so much, and that the rest of them would love to help, really. Isn't her idea a lovely idea? Situation is then. The Forsan have assembled at the waterfront. Many of them are wet, shivering, as are the stevedores and longshoremen. Their target is invisible, and bushels and bushels of bananas. And the gangplank, slippery field. Soldiers and dock workmen yell curses at the man on the boat, but he stays quiet, almost as though he is not there. As though he jumped into the water at some point and swam away in the cover of darkness. This theory has been advanced before, and Paris Juliaca ended up taking a big drink from the Usher River as a consequence. A falconer finally arrived, takes stocks of the situation and parks his order. Surely, surely, if the man who hijacked the barge is throwing banana peels at the gangplank, the way in is to storm the barge in a body, because he can't throw enough peels to send everyone tumbling into the water. The Fursan form up, skeptically, but they are professional. As the Kispisi and Skolanders watch, as the people the Fursan are paid to keep in line watch, the Fursan break into a triumphant howl and run at the gangplank. A few banana peels are flung by a dark hand, barely visible over the bushels of fruit, and Paris Juleka once more falls, comically, into the water. She is then joined by a half-dozen of her comrades, as the gangplank peels and falls into the Asha as well. Whether an act of deliberate sabotage on the part of Bindish hijacker, or just sheer coincidence, there is now no more access to the barge. The Falconer watches this and then tells the leaders of Scovish longshoremen to get their hooks and draw the barge closer, and to climb aboard. They do this. A dozen men and women pulling, and the barge slams against the stone of the jetty. A quick boarding action reveals nothing. The hijacker, in the confusion, leaped into the water and swam away. The falconer hopes that he drowned in the fast water. Anyone has any idea what this was all about, then? Falconer yells from the barge at the watching Catrici on the wharf, barely concealing his rage. He is surrounded by bananas from the ancestral trees of Catherine, stolen food from the stolen land. Or was it all just a bit of Catrici fun? Everyone knows that Casimutin Anrokal had a love affair with a demon in the old country. How his wife Nazgul made peace with it? It's a story in itself, surely, but none we will ever know, because the woman would never share. Kasimutin and Nazgul have four daughters, women to be proud of, but they are not proud of their parents. Nazgul treats them with a strange anger, telling them so many times over the years that she only bore the shame of her husband's reputation for their sakes. She does not understand why each, one by one, as they grow old, run off to other parts of the district, or find lovers in Uduasha who will take them. Nazgul has now one daughter, 
left at home. And this one bears the brunt of a mother whose heart has broken again and again and again. And Kasimuti is to be found by the side of the water of the high locks, watching the water, watching the water, knowing that he, yes, he, you, you know whom I mean, can come to him on the water whenever he chooses. And surely he dawdles because of some great delay, his demon prince, some strange affair beyond human comprehension. Kasimutin has waited through the adolescence of four of his children, and he is happy to wait longer. It is a hard thing to love an eternal being, and it requires patience. It requires a focus, away from distractions. A broken shard of brick clatters off the wall beside a girl's head. She freezes and drops her writing slate. She turns and sees them, jumping out from the shadows from behind boxes of bananas and piles of wood. Three children her age, yelling at her and Kathrisi. Their words are violent, and one of them reaches for a whole unbroken brick, raising it high on one trembling arm. The girl runs, and the hurled brick bounces and shatters. Get her! Get the little ghost! The Kethrisi children cry, chasing her into the darkness of the alleyways. But they know the way better than her. And as she runs, she sees adults who look like her assailants, and they see her. Their looks blank or confused or angry or amused at a scared little scope girl lost where she has no right to be. Get the ghost! Get the ghost! The children shout, and she hears someone laughing, finds a shadowy wall blocking her path, rimmed with shards of broken glass to deter thieves. Now she is crying. She jumps at the cracked bricks for a hold and starts to haul herself up. <laughs> 